Hello everyone, I'm Colin Ellis and for 30 years I was a permanent employee of other people's cultures. What I wanted to know more than anything else during that time was how to build a great culture myself. And so I wrote a book called Culture Fix, which is the world's first how-to guide for building great workplace culture. And in this, the Culture Makers podcast, I get industry leaders from around the world to expand on the ideas that I wrote about in the book and get them to share actionable things that you can do to create a great place to work yourself. And remember, listening is good, but action is better. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Culture Makers podcast. Today, I talk to Mohan Ayaswamy. Mohan was a former uh, Chief Technology Officer for the Defence Force here in Australia and is now a strategic advisor. He has just got a wealth of experience and he's got some just fantastic stories which he shares, including his very first role uh, on Indian Railways where he was thrown straight into one of the biggest change programs ever and really had to learn on his feet. He talks a lot about culture and government. For those of you who, who've listened to my uh, podcast before or have seen some of my work, you know that I spent eight years in government myself and created a bit of a name for myself in changing cultures. And I think often there's this fear that it can't be done is that's the way we've always done things around here. Again, Moen uh, disproves that and he talks about some of the cultures and subcultures that not only that he's built, but also that he's been part of and some of the leaders that he's had the great fortune to follow too. He talks about uh, risk taking, you know, and the riskiest thing to do is to take no risks. Um, and, and talks also about how another thing that he's learned is to have kind of respectful disagreement, which is super important for vibrant cultures. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's uh, podcast. It's with Mohan Ayaswamy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Culture Makers podcast. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Mohan Ayaswamy. Mohan, hello. Hi, Colin. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you. Now, I, I, you've got a distinguished career. I can say distinguished. I often think the word distinguished comes with the word old, but I want you to know that's not <laughs> what I mean at all here. Distinguished career. Uh, you've, had a, you've had plenty of roles over your time in business, it's fair to say. Yes, absolutely. And you can say old as well, Colin. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you say that, Mohan. I'll let you say that. Now, I, I came across Mohan when I uh, spoke at a conference uh, in Australia. Mohan did a, an excellent talk about culture and I thought, oh, he's a great guy to have on the podcast, particularly as he was talking about changing culture within the public service, which is often seen uh, as something that you know, kind of can't be done, that government is too hard to change. So I'm going to ask Mohan to talk a little bit about that. But before we get there, Mohan, so where was, where was home originally? India. Uh, come from India, southern part of India. What is now called Chennai, but originally Madras. Madras, that's right. Yeah, yeah, Madras. And did you, was technology, because technology is your, your job now, was that always in your background? Was that something as a kid you thought, you, you know, you kind of en enjoyed playing around with bits of wires and things? <laughs> I don't think I can say that, but I did, I did engineering, uh, electronics, telecommunication with some computers thrown in. So, yes, I think from my college days, I've pretty much been a 
technology oriented guy. So. And and this was back in the I think it was the early eighties, was it? Late seventies, early eighties, which was no, 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 not that old. It's it's, it's, it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know I may look like that, but it's late, 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 late 80s, so around 87, that kind of time. 87, wow. Yeah. Um, but even then, like 87, we were just, you know, com- computing was just being talked about as the new yeah. thing there. Um, and, and so really, what was the start for you? What was your first job? How did you get into that? How did you find it? Yeah, it's very interesting because I started with an organization that used to be IBM India. And uh, for, for, for so many reasons, uh, all U.S. companies had to leave India at a particular time. So IBM India uh, went out of India, and then I joined that organization where lots of mainframes and machines and heaps of software, everything was just left with uh, very, very young 20-year-olds like me. So it was like a kid in a toy shop and uh, we were playing around with all kinds of software and technologies at a very young age. But uh, my real eye-opening moment was when I was uh, leading a small team in South India, as I said, uh, to automate the Indian uh, railway reservation system. So if you, I mean, seriously, that opened my eyes to a whole bunch of things, uh, technology, transformation, application of technology, to end users of various descriptions, and most importantly, uh, the topic of today, which is uh, change in culture. Uh, so if I can indulge uh, for a couple of, of minutes. Yeah. Uh, Indian Railways is one of the oldest organizations in the world, and it is still, till today, I think, the biggest uh, public sector organization in the whole world. Uh, 25,000 railway stations, a million reservation-type transactions happening at every single railway station, and a very complex railway network, and that had to be automated. So we had to, you know, completely write software from scratch. So it was a technology challenge uh, for, for, for a newcomer like you wouldn't believe. That is only one part. But the second part was all the railway clerks and booking people, they were used to ages and ages of a particular way of booking tickets, particular way of allocating seats with so many different concessions and categories of reservation and all. So within a period of about three to four years, we had to completely transform that place into an automated reservation system, train the various people to use the new system. And so to me, that is the starting point of my career. And that is a good thing for me, really a good thing, because Till this moment, whenever I talk about technology or massive organizations or change, I almost automatically think about, you know, changing the culture of the end users or stakeholders as an integral part of the overall design. Which which is incredible. That early on in your career to be involved in something of that size, that scale, um, you know, because one of the things I talk a lot about is the fact that we we don't give people the skills to transform cultures. You know, we don't teach them how to do it. You were literally thrown into the deep end. You had no choice, right? I had no choice. You know, I think I tell a favorite story where, you know, one one evening, uh, the railway minister then announced that a bunch of people going to a particular pilgrimage will get a 50% discount in the tickets going there. And uh, and the next morning, uh, if you can visualize an Indian railway station, and there is a whole reservation booth and thousands of people queuing up at 7 o'clock in the morning. There is a glass wall, and behind the glass wall are people like myself and my colleagues with uh, the VAC 780 system in the background. 
and there was no government gazette notification saying the fare has to be changed so we were asked not to do any fare changes and then when the first ticket was issued uh, people saw the first person in the queue saw that it was issued at full price so he turned around to everybody else and said you know the computer guys have cheated us they are not giving us a 50% discount <laughs> and, and this is not exaggeration a whole bunch of thousands of people started marching towards us with only a glass wall standing between us and them so <laughs> <laughs> we talk about psychological safety now yeah. there's no physical exactly. safety back then oh, that sounds insane exactly and, and you know and the reason i'm saying this is because i wanted to highlight a thing about the leadership okay the leadership of the indian railway organizations at the time were so committed to all aspects of the transformation wholeheartedly and they were ready to take any amount of risk and the reason even though it sounds humorous at the now it's, it was not humorous at the point of time was that the 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 senior manager there at the time just took about 2 seconds and said i don't care go and change the face even though the rules of the government is that unless a gazette notification comes you can't go and change railway fares it's such an important thing and he was ready to take that risk personally and say now this is this will get out of hand so let me do it so it's, it's something i also learned a bit about leadership in sense of staying with your team having committed to the change you know stay with it make sure it is done come what may i will take some of the risks and help you uh, come succeed So that was also a good lesson in a leadership for me uh, during that particular uh, project. And would you say Mohan we'll talk a little bit more about some of the things that you've done recently. Would you say your own leadership style has been shaped by the people that you were led by for both positive and negative reasons? Yeah, and we talk about positive reasons. So, yeah, I absolutely so whether it was this uh, Indian railway reservation experience I talked about or more recently, you know, defense Colsmaya uh toll group in all these organizations there's always a one or a set of uh, business leaders who have had the pleasure of working uh, for and with who have actually you know gone along with the journey and they've contributed a lot towards uh changing the culture of the organization along with introducing some massive technological changes. Yeah. Well, I agree certainly my own career was shaped by you know and I I think in 30 years I probably had six leaders who who I still hold in really high regard. Most of them have have retired now and and they were responsible for shaping me. But also it was the people that I came across that didn't make those decisions at crucial times that chose to tread the kind of mm. well-worn path that rather than to go a different way that also kind of informed the things that I maybe should do and I you know in the example that you gave there about the decision being made you know that's the kind of thing where you know that whole difference between asking for permission and asking for forgiveness in that instance clearly he was going for well if it fails i'm going to ask for all of the forgiveness <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> i remember actually as a kid you know i used to liverpool was home for me and i used to get my ticket at the train station i used to get the train into work i remember once missing my train i blamed the ticket office because there was a long queue and that evening i watched a Michael Palin travel program which was hugely popular in the UK and he was at a ticket booth in India and the queues were like hundreds deep and I've never <laughs> yeah. complained about a ticket booth ever since. Good idea, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was a great project to to get you started and and then so it, uh, what stage did you leave India was it a job that you were headhunted for did you come straight to Australia how, how did that happen? Thing I I came to Australia for a completely different project and uh, from India 
and it so happened that on a sunday i went to a technology exhibition where i met my future employer and cut a long story short then i was on the plane back to india i had already got a job here with with, with my or whatever it was called then work visa temporary residence sponsored for so yeah it was exciting yeah that would be an exciting so what year was that mohan uh 1990 1990 wow yeah. wow and so was that the was that haltech Correct. That is Haltech. Yeah, yeah, fabulous. And then you spent a good kind of eight years almost with with Haltech, technical director. So at this point, what had you learned about yourself? Had, had you started to put your own, I guess, impression on culture? Had you started to think about how you develop the team to be able to deliver a service? Absolutely. I think I learned a lot about Australian culture. <laughs> needless to say, uh, because um, in, 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 I mean, without any disrespect to anyone in particular, uh, Indian culture is sometimes you get very emotional and personal about professional decisions, whereas in Australia you can have a healthy disagreement and then have a beer later. Uh, that's a very, very good, important point to know because as a, as a young man, I learned a lot about that in terms of how you can have. Uh, serious disagreements within your own team members and not make it personal. I think that's a very important thing for me in my whole life. But uh, but coming back to, you know, Haltech and the thing, and the, see, the, the, the thing that happened in Haltech was that it was a huge IBM mainframe shop. And I think most of the world was IBM mainframe, SNA networks those days. And then Unix and open systems and all were just making an entry. And one of the things I had to do was to say that you can actually develop software in Australia. You don't have to necessarily go out and buy software because that was the overall culture that, you know, you will go and buy software. So this was about, you know, actually we can develop software and you don't have to buy anything. And I actually, for the first time, we actually wrote a piece of code or a software to connect IBM mainframes to Unix machines. And later on, that became a product that got sold globally. Fantastic. And again, we're talking about innovation here. That's what we're talking yeah. about is that that ability. Before I get there, I want to come back to the, the cultural thing because it's crucially important. It's one of the questions I get asked a lot actually is, oh, how do I how do I build a team when I've got different, different kinds of cultures? I said, well, you've got to do your homework. You've got to take the time to understand the, the, the I guess each different culture and, and you know how it differs. That, that Australian thing that you said is totally true, a disagreement and a beer or else we have a beer, a disagreement agreement and then a beer um in 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 england the culture was quite different you know we, we're we're not very emotional or we weren't very emotional we're not you know we we tend to kind of bottle up all of the emotions we love to cue and then moan about it later um rather than have the discussion <laughs> i did some work in in malaysia which is you know almost four different cultures and then you add your own working culture in there mm-hmm. so you know i think w- what you're talking about there again very forward thinking erin may erin mayer wrote a great book uh, called the culture map which talks exactly to this the different types of ways that people like to be led the different conversations and and you're Absolutely right. Being able to have those, uh, I guess, healthy disagreements where you get to a landing point uh, is crucially important. What you don't want to do, right, is get to the point where you agree to disagree because fundamentally you still disagree. Absolutely. And in, interestingly, you talked about England. In the job, in the 8AS, I was there in that organization, I had a development team in England and I also had a development team in India. And, uh, you know, being a German company, I had to go and attend board meetings in Germany. Absolutely fabulous. In a, in, a, in a span of two weeks, you travel from Australia to Germany to England to India and back. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it is. It is quite a quite an interesting, you know, experience understanding how people work. And you're absolutely right. Every country has got a different style, and uh, and you have to adapt to those cultures and uh, respect them. First of all, I think one of the things I want to say is it's nothing like a right culture or a wrong culture. Uh, I think first and foremost we have to accept the various cultures and. Uh, if some of the habits and cultures will have to be changed because it is for the goodness of the organization i think it is upon the leaders and to take the people through the journey rather than you know shout down shout culture down their throats yeah that's, that's right yeah and and you definitely want to talk about this might as well talk about it now because there's still in some organizations this tendency for leadership to tell people what the culture is and expect them to conform to bring in some design consultants to draw up a nice logo and a set of i don't know behaviors or values and say right you have to do this it doesn't work does it no no uh, i think it's very important to take uh, so the people through the journey and sometimes they may not come with you on the journey they may not like it for example when i worked at coles uh, it was the beginning of the transformation where we wanted to bring all the 16 different brands under coles if you remember coles used to have target liquorland you know whole bunch of bylo all these brands and uh, at that time the ceo at the time wanted to make everything coles meyer said you know we want to have one coles meyer brand maybe different stores underneath the brand so when that happened at that time the first 12 months was designated as the year of the organization so they basically said you know for the first 12 months it's called the year of the organization they went through meticulously uh, the people who have signed up to this transformation or believed in the transformation and those who who did not and one good thing i saw about that was if people didn't accept it or they were not signed up to it uh, they were respected it is not as if you know you know they were considered as bad people or whatever they were respected and uh, you know eventually some of them they chose to leave the organization that was also quite fine but the main thing is at the end of the 12 months we knew that we had a management team a leadership team uh, which was quite committed to the transformation and we didn't have to look over each other's shoulders to make sure nobody is derailing the transformation journey so the point i was trying to make is there's nothing right or wrong some people don't accept certain changes it's fine it's respect that and if they don't want to come along with you on the journey that is fine but as a leadership team if you re- recognize that this is a change that the organization needs then uh, we should be committed to it take people on the journey and um, yeah respectfully let go of those who don't quite agree with you, you know, my personal view on this is that it's everybody's journey and you know i i just hold my head in my hands as a former senior executive government particularly <laughs> when people say right we'll take them on this journey it's like well it's their journey as well you know the culture belongs to everybody what we've got to do is get people involved in defining what that journey is then they'll self select whether they want to be part of it or not because they co-created yeah. it as soon as you make it your journey it's very easy for people to say i don't want to be on that and that's where you end up yeah. losing the good people and you don't want to be the good people now for those of you who don't know who colds are so coldsmire are a large retail group in um, in australia and you know they've been through their for sure just like most organizations of of restructures and cultural alignments and i think uh, mohan that the retention of those really effective subcultures which is what you were talking about is crucially important for the for the longevity of the business yeah absolutely 
Absolutely. And Toll was no different because Toll was pretty much built as a group from a lot of acquisitions that the, the first CEO of Toll did. So, yes, you're right. You know, it's a it's an assimilation of multiple subcultures. And over a period of time, you have to integrate that to create a single culture for the group. And it is important to acknowledge that it cannot always be top down. It can't be thrust down. So sometimes you need to accept some of the subcultures as maybe the right things to do. And then so there should be a lot of tolerance, give and take, understanding, so that we land on an accepted culture that is conducive not only for the transformation that is happening right now, but for anything that may happen for the future. As you know, change is the only consistent thing. And nowadays, changes happen very often. So Yeah, that's an understatement. It's literally every five yeah. minutes at the minute. So toll groups, so this is this is 2010 for you now. This is transportation yeah. and logistics. Um, yes. and, and you again, you were there for, 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 for four years in the strategy and architecture piece. Now, is it fair to say, I mean, you don't have to talk about toll particularly, just more generally, if, if, no. if that's easier. In, in terms of strategy and culture, you know, one of the things that I hear a lot is organizations put a a lot of time and effort into strategy, but then not building the culture they need to define the strategy. Is that something that you've tried to do in your roles? And to be honest, and I will, I'll be the first one to admit that I have, in spite of all my previous experience, sometimes I missed it in terms of thinking about the technology, technology strategy, and then uh, think of culture as an afterthought. And I am, I'm happy to admit that I have fallen into that trap. But uh, but I think there are some eye-opening moments that makes you understand that no culture has to come sometimes either along with or ahead of strategy. I mean, if you take a toll group, because there are multiple small companies that have got you know acquired to build the bigger group, we had to actually instill uh, an understanding about the importance of information security. What happens if your data is lost to your competitor? How important is password changes, frequent password changes are important to the organization? Needed to be done culturally first before you put any any big cybersecurity strategy in place. Uh, some of the sorry, sorry. No, I just want to jump in. Do you think do you think individuals and organizations take information security seriously, or do you think that even now in in you know kind of twenty twenty when we're recording this that it's still something that people pay lip service to? No, I think I think it's definitely changed considerably in the last eighteen months or so. I think with an enormous amount of press around Target and Equifax and you know some of the other stories. So I think whether whether out of sheer delight about the topic or because of the extreme concern about reputational damage or financial damage, uh, I think people are accepting accepting the fact. But I can tell you that even in, in large public pri- public and private organizations, it was almost like a compliance regime. You know, they say, okay, let us do something. I was the CISO of Australian Defense, right? Uh, one of the big things I had to do was to change uh, the culture from being compliance-based to risk-based. So what I mean by that is you will have a checklist of you know 200 items that need to comply with information security rules, and you have to tick the box. So that will result in two outcomes. One is everybody will try to do something that will strictly adhere to these 200 items, which may result in a less than desired outcome for the business in total, whether it is in the form of capability or agility or whatever. 
or alternatively they will do the project and then seek forgiveness like you say can i get ex- exemptions to these things both of which are not correct so it uh, one of the major cultural changes that i think has just started which has still got a long way to go in the field of information security is to introduce risk and articulate the risks associated from a cyber security perspective right at the design and then take various business leaders keep them proactively posted and then so when the, when when a particular technology design gets signed off all the business leaders know that this may result in a possible data breach or this may result in a possible exposure of some description and what is the risk associated with that and then they can make a decision with their eyes wide open that this is a risk i can take or sorry this is too much of a risk however good the technology is we can't go down this path so i think if we do it up front proactively and and bake in if i can use that word uh, a risk based culture as part of the overall design of the solution that will be a great thing and that and that requires everyone to look at the way that they behave um mohan uh, i think i'm right in yeah. saying it it also requires yeah. um everyone to do the right thing so it, it requires an assumption of trust from organizations that people do the right thing and then you get this move away from compliance where we you know every box has to be ticked Right, you know, to to one where we trust our staff to do the right thing, and then every individual has to say, "Well, my behaviours dictate that this is the way to do this particular thing." Is that right? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And uh, yeah, I have seen so many cases. I'm sure you would have called in where just because one or two people don't comply, it just they put so much restrictions, and then you know, ninety nine point nine percent of well-meaning people are derived of i'm sorry are deprived of a, a piece of technology or a piece of innovation or a new way of working only because there are some who don't comply so that's why i think a more risk based approach is better than a compliance based approach i completely agree mohan you know and i'm i've been critical in the past of organizations that create processes for the minority not the majority so rather than help coach support people to change behavior such that you don't need to lock everything down um you know what they do is impose more and more process more and more process i want to come back i i, I mentioned innovation um a couple of minutes ago a few minutes ago and i wanted to come back to that because i think you know one of the thing you kind of the, the next role for you as the chief technology officer chief information security officer for the department of defense in australia 1000 people 1.5 billion dollar budget god knows, <laughs> god knows how you slept at night uh, maybe you can tell us how in a minute um you know innovation lives inside all of us right and it's about creating the right kinds of conditions and and were you able to do that within the within a government context yeah i think so uh yes government can be a bit difficult because we have got some policy restrictions and particularly in an organization like defense uh there are certain rules that are of national security importance right it's not because people don't want to embrace innovation but uh, certain uh, certain innovation certain and you know solutions may have national security implications and we have to see that very very carefully so it's a balance of as i said before risk comes as the most important criteria you have to understand what is the risk and then the even more important thing is uh, i mentioned in one of my speeches which is that delta risk what is the difference between the risk that we are currently carrying and what is the risk that will be when we introduce something new and i think when we start discussing those things it becomes a lot easier 
right uh, so for example you know if you take defense one of the important innovations was machine learning and artificial intelligence right so if you put a lot of artificial intelligence everybody knows is great and you have to actually uh, you know and it can do a lot of good things for an organization like defense but when you teach an artificial intelligence machine you need to teach it carefully for example if you teach the friend as an enemy and the enemy as a friend for example the consequences of that and what the artificial intelligence machine can come out with you can imagine how catastrophic that will be so uh, to answer your question is it very difficult to introduce innovation i wouldn't think so because the government is as open in all my experience to embrace innovation but then uh, people have been used to Uh, following certain policies i think to me if you want to introduce innovation in public sector one of the things to look for straight away is policies if your policies are so rigid and you know it absolutely hinders you from doing anything in a new way that is uh, that is something to be looked at mm-hmm. but once you get past the policy hurdle then in in big organizations and national security organizations you have to look at what is the because it is national security right you you may end up harming your citizens just because you have got some wonderful new technology you want to bring in so the idea of making sure that risk is properly articulated is a very important thing in in defense or or any other national security agency the last part in public sector is that there will always be a set of people who are used to doing certain things in certain ways and they absolutely believe that is the right way right and you know they are as uh, committed in their thinking that this is the best way to send the taxpayers dollars as someone a newcomer is so it is very important to have some really honest and open conversations with a whole variety of stakeholders and a whole variety of people and then be humble enough sometimes to actually accept that maybe you know maybe they are right and i am wrong so we may have to make some adjustments so in my experience in public sector i've always found that it's a little bit of give and take stakeholder engagement and and discussion and not being pedantic about everything will be driven top down uh, if you avoid all those things and if you have the ability to articulate the delta risk in a very understandable manner to you know the senior executives i think there's definitely a lot of scope for introducing innovation in government that's uh, such a great point i you know one of the things that i love talking about is the fact that nobody wants to come to work to be the worst employee ever everyone <laughs> has got genuine concerns they've worked a particular way for a number of years as an element of fear that we're going to move move away from that and what we have to do is take on board their thoughts their feelings and either kind of embed them into the new way of working or at least help coach support them transitioning to a new way of working you can't simply say right we're going to have a new ways of working project we're going to roll out this training course and you will change because telling people yeah. to change doesn't actually help <laughs> absolutely absolutely i mean i i don't think change is all about conducting a few training courses and then claim success it is a journey <laughs> It is a journey, yeah. And and if you get a badge at the end of it, that's nice. But it's not about the badge. Now, when we when we met Mohan, you talked a little bit about some of the charity work that you do. So I'd love for you to share with the people listening uh, the the charitable work that you do. Thank you. Uh, in around mid two thousands, you know, two thousand five to be precise, uh, you know, some some of us, mainly actually two of us, founding directors of this charity organization, had an epiphanous moment. We thought we should do something back. to the community and so we formed this organization called charinda 
charities through Indian Arts in Australia. The main aim of that is to bridge India and Australia, bring a lot of Indian music concerts to Australia and give the money to various charities. So we have so far donated $360,000 or more to various organizations in Australia, outside Australia. But that actually was a different experience. So we bring really, really major Indian shows to auditoriums like Rod Laver Arena and you know Sydney Superdome and such massive venues and massive events. And uh, we, we give away all the money back to charity. So that is a different experience altogether uh, because it involves uh, not just transformation in the people's minds as to working for a not-for-profit organization, even though you've got some well-paying jobs. So it's run by 30 volunteers, 30 or so volunteers, all of whom have got jobs like mine, earning a decent salary. And uh, so we all come together now once a year for a few months and just dedicate our weekends and uh, after hours to this cause. Fantastic. And what's, what's it called again? Charinda. Charinda. See. So, so we, we'll, we'll share the link um, on, on the podcast of, of Charinda. And if people want to find out more about you, I mean, I think they should go to LinkedIn because when I read through your profile on LinkedIn, some of the roles you've had are absolutely incredible, Mohan. Is that the place that people, best place that people can connect yeah, with you? Yeah, please. Yeah, anytime. And more than happy to, you know, learn from everyone else and share my stories as well. And, uh, and you know, just quickly on that, uh, on that uh, charity thing, one of the things is, even though all of us are, you know, executives in different companies, somehow when you get together, uh, and nobody gets paid, as you can imagine, you know, it's all <laughs> pro bono work. But the amount of motivation and drive that each one of us exhibits towards absolutely meeting the goals of the organization, and you know, I'm sure if you have seen a, like a rock music concert, the date is announced, so I don't have the flexibility of changing the dates or anything. So just the sheer, the same 30 people who work in big companies come together, driven by a higher cause called charity. So the change in the culture, attitude, motivation, drive, when the cause is well-defined and you can actually touch and feel almost what you're going to give back is a completely different experience when you don't know it. I think that I try to bring back into organizations I work for. So right up front, if you can explain what is the end result and how good will you feel about the end result, that may actually change the culture enormously too. Uh, Mohan, that's a great place to leave it. Changing lives in work and out of work. I want to say a big thank you uh, for joining us. That's Mohan Eswami. Thanks, Mohan. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Please remember to subscribe or share the link on your social media platform of choice, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you hang out. You can also forward it onto your colleagues and friends and help them to inspire and motivate others too. Better still, why not keep the conversation going and join our community of culture makers from around the world who share information on the things that have worked and haven't worked. You can do that at www.culturefixcommunity.com and remember, sharing is caring. See you next time.